Welcome to the Learning with Lowell podcast. I am Lowell Thompson, and my lifelong love of learning saved my life. A few years ago, I was in and out of the ER and ICU with no end in sight due to, at the time, a mysterious illness. I read medical journals, talked to scientists and researchers, and learned how to develop a good treatment plan, all of which put me on the path to becoming healthy, which I am now. I have met the team responsible for creating the drug that saved my life. And now I'm taking my experiences and love of learning and translating them into interviews with experts, CEOs, and scientists in order to achieve three goals in every episode. To have fun and interesting conversations that are enjoyable to listen to, to learn what these people are developing and creating, to hear what their tactics, strategies, tools, books, and resources they use to accomplish what they were doing, so that you can learn, apply, and see what else is out there and enrich your life with every episode. Before we get started, I want to draw attention to a crowdfunding campaign that I'm going to be starting. I've been doing this podcast for so many years, and I know a lot of you have been enjoying my content and asking for ways you can give back and help out. This is going to be a big one that you can do. In the show notes, you're going to see a link to a website that's going to show you what I'm working on, kind of the concept, the vision that I'm working with. And if you sign up, if you share it with your friends, you'll get a chance even if you don't partake in the crowdfunding campaign to win what I'm, I'm making. And what I'm making is an advanced modern hive that'll make it so bees can live and thrive, beekeepers and bee researchers can be connected through data and sensory units put inside the hive so that you can know what's going on in your hive 24-7. So it's easier, there's less confusion, and much, much, much more, but I don't want to get into that now. Without, just check the show notes, sign up, tell your friends. It's really easy. It's going to be a lot of fun. And I can't do this without your help, so please help me out. Today we are joined with James Crawl. He has developed tracking software, data collection, and various technologies to monitor and research bees, specifically bumblebees. And in this episode, we get into where his passion came from, how he's a really good photographer. Like I'm going to link his uh, website in the show notes, but it's called James crawl.com so james spelled normally d and then crawl like c-r-a-l-l.com you can check it out he has all his publications research and he does mentoring on there as well and he, that's something he offers later in the episode at the end if you've ever wanted to find out and kind of identify the different species of bees and like really get involved and learn more like this is a great person to talk to a great person to listen to and we get into some really cool things with bumblebees which you don't normally talk about though they're like the gentle giants of the beekeeping world so without further ado let's start hearing about james his his artwork his pictures his science related activities and much much more and book recommendations at the end it's a fantastic one i read it i noticed that on your website you have some very beautiful images like just the landing page in of itself made me feel like oh thank you yeah like it was almost like something out of like narnia not to like be like completely nerdy about it but like i read a lot of uh, you know, Narnia is just this beautiful place, but I'm curious, like, are there some images that you're particularly proud of that you wouldn't mind mentioning? I can link them in the show notes, but like that you generally come back to, if not have like posted on your wall at home so you can like see them every day. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good question. So I actually really like that. The picture you're referencing from, uh, it's from Costa Rica. It's the Las Cruces, the one that's on my homepage. Um, yeah, it just has that kind of magical forest. I really like that one. I have a couple that uh, they're sort of for their beauty, but also for their utility. I have a couple uh, nice pictures of bumblebees with little tags on that I got with like a nice, you know, lucky 
happenstance of seeing uh, one of my bees outside with a tag on at a flower. So I have a couple of those that I use as kind of stock pretty photos in just about every talk I ever give. <laughs> so a couple of those. And then there are some, I can send you links to them, but there are some really, some pictures that I really like, mainly because they took me a long time to get, but of orchid bees in particular flying um, as they're kind of coming to visit flowers. So yeah, those are kind of some of my favorites. Have you seen the TED talk where the guy has like this high resolution camera on a bee on, on like a, a, a bee cell and it like slowly starts as like a larva and gets really, really big until it's like a normal bee and then like hatches and like moves on? I don't know if I've seen that specific one, but yeah, I definitely have seen some of those absolutely amazing time lapse of development pictures in, in bees. They're phenomenal. Yeah, they're, they're really beautiful. And like, they, I think... A lot of times people think bee and they think hornet. And so like that, I think they help like, like images like the ones you take help show that there's like this beauty there. And they're also not hornets. They look very different. Um, But I'm I'm also curious. And hornets are beautiful too, but yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Bees are, are totally amazing, gorgeous little creatures. And there's this amazing diversity of them too. So there's something uh, not everybody knows, but there's about 20,000 species of bees on the planet. So. You know, honeybees and bumblebees are pretty, but also there's this um, kind of dazzling array of of bees on our planet, and they are very adorable, very pretty. Do you have a favorite? Uh, like, shot in the dark there. This was not one I was curious about, but like, do you have a favorite bee or like a a, a species? Uh, I kind of have to go bumblebee, just because mm. I spend the most time looking at them. But there's uh, many different species of bumblebees too. I really like one bee, species of bumblebee called Bombus ternarius that I know from kind of Vermont and some of the northern stretches of, of New England and the eastern U.S. So that's a really pretty bee. It's got this gorgeous red stripe on its, on its abdomen. So that's a pretty bee. But bumblebees in general, they're just the closest to my heart. Mm-hmm. But, well, then this will probably make you uh, happy. The, um, I actually use bumblebees to help people get over their fear of bees. So like whenever people are like, I'm afraid of bees, They'll, they'll like burrow into my ears or something like that and kill me. But I take them out to a field. Like there's usually some around. Bumblebees are awesome. They're always around. And there'll be like one on a flower. And it's just going about its day. And I'll like gently poke it off the flower. And it goes, Bzzz. and it's like this most adorable thing because it goes back to work. It does not care as long as like you're not too mean about it. Or like if you just very gently poke it and uh, it'll just like pop off. And like people are like, oh, okay. And then they try and it's like, it's like pretty cute. And then they realize, oh, this guy's just going about his day. Like he's not going to hurt anything. So I, I actually, I think bumblebees are like, like really a, a gateway drug in terms of like beekeeping and bees in general, because they're like, they're like the gentlest, like they're like elephants of the bee world. Like they're, they're like these little gentle guys that as long as they leave them alone, they never really mess with you. No, that's absolutely true. Especially when they're out foraging all those, uh, all those female workers out there, which I should mention, so all of the, basically all of the bees you see in the middle of summer, those are all um, sterile females because they live in these social colonies, right? But yeah, when they're out foraging, they're not paying any attention to you. You have to really make them angry to, to get a thing out of them. And they're fuzzy, which helps mm-hmm. too. You know, they're, they got that big, fuzzy, cute bear look to them. The, uh, jump, jumping back to the... Um the idea that you take really interesting pictures. I don't know if you by chance seen the secret wall, uh, secret life of Walter Mitty. There's like, especially about this guy who like travels the world to try to like find this photographer. And the photographer talks about how I didn't, I didn't let you answer the question. <laughs> Have you seen that? 
I have not seen that. I kind of know the movie. It was like a Ben Stiller movie, right? Yeah, it's a, it was actually pretty good. Maybe, it's about yeah. This, yeah, it's about the, like this guy who's never like taken a shot, and then he finally does, and he realizes the world's like beautiful and stuff. It's actually really good. But the he meets this. He's basically trying to find this photographer, and they they're up on this mountain. They see a snow leopard, and the guy doesn't take a picture because he says that. There are a lot, a lot of times he'll just let the image be the, like the moment be the moment and he won't try and take a picture of it. And in, su- in such a way, like not like alter it. Cause if you're trying to take an, uh, a picture of a moment, then you're not in the best way, like observing the moment in and of itself. I think was what the guy was saying, which is kind of like meta about the movie. And, uh, but I'm curious, do you do that? Like if you see like a beautiful image and you have your, your phone ready to go, do you ever like stop and be like, just enjoy it? Or you're like, no, I want to share this with people or like capture that image. Or like, does that like resonate with you at all? Oh, no, that definitely resonates with me. Yeah, because you're, I mean, this is, I think, especially true for insects where usually if you're trying to get these pretty up close shots, you don't see this when you see the picture. But in reality, what that looks like is usually laying down about two inches away from some flower and getting all up in a bee's business to try and get a nice close <laughs> macro shot and so you're totally messing with whatever they're doing so if you want to pay attention to what animals are doing in their natural environment and really kind of be there with them and learning and paying attention to what they're doing you can't really be in there trying to take pictures so yeah no for sure that resonates with me i think it's definitely the yeah the schrodinger's cat of (laughs) insect world you can't really be paying attention to it and uh take a picture of it at the same time So um, one of the things, I'll, before we like spend the rest of the episode talking about bees, I'm curious, the, is, other than taking beautiful images, is there anything else that you're really nerdy and passionate about that you wouldn't mind sharing? Oh, let me think about that one. Does it, and it has to be nerdy specific? <laughs> it could be anything. If you're like just Although, really excited about like tree bark, like I'll love to hear about why you like tree bark. You know, it, it doesn't have to be. Yeah, right, right. You love. No, I'd say the most, probably surprising thing that I am into nerding out about and that some folks might consider nerdy is uh, local politics. So I've gotten pretty into working on sort of local campaigns for office and doing, given my partial background as a data scientist, uh, yeah, I like looking at sort of numbers and thinking about that strategy. So that's probably the most surprising nerdy thing I do. Uh, being a biologist by day and then helping run local political campaigns <laughs> in the evening. Or did, um, you probably like the math guy that's like going around on the internet. I don't know. I'll probably kick the, cut this out so we don't get into politics, but that uh, there's like a, a, there's one of the presidential candidates. That's not local, but like, he's very like a dad. Oh, Andrew so. Yang. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've been reading a lot. Andrew Yang. Yeah. 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 So like, I don't know, as a, he seems like a math guy. So that's why I t- connected the two. I'm also like very hesitant to say anymore because I don't want like people like listening and be like, oh, you're just like trying to push this guy. But I just thought it was uh, interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, 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 no worries. And yeah. Yeah. The, um, have you ever read Rules for Radicals? I hear it's a really great book to understand like uh, how to like change things in a local political way. Yeah, no, I uh, have not actually read it, but I do feel like I've sort of secondhand read it because it's the Bible for everybody that does kind of local <laughs> organizing stuff. Um, yeah, so I uh, am ashamed to admit I have not actually directly read it, but I feel like it definitely influences a lot of what I do. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Well, I'm, I'm, I like that uh, you're very engaged in your community, whether it's you know uh, with bees or uh, 
you know, campaigning for a uh, for change that you want to see. Like so often, like especially nowadays, people just kind of get like calcified and disliking something that they don't actually see the pathway to change it. And so it's it's interesting the opportunities out there for people to do local canvassing for whatever they believe in, and in a respectful way, hopefully. Um, but uh, one question about your time at Harvard before we, uh, as we transition into what your research is, I'm curious. It says like you started out as like a research assistant type person. Did you? Did you like, was that like a job? And then you like basically proved yourself to get into a PhD role that you could study more about bees? Or was it like always kind of like on that track? Oh, no, it wasn't um, really. I was not on that track from the beginning really at all. So I came out of undergrad. So I studied, my undergraduate was at Swarthmore College. It's a small school outside of Philadelphia. And I got degrees in sociology and biology. And coming out, of undergraduate, I was very sure that I was going to be working in sort of rural agricultural development and some more environmentally focused work. But I had happened in my very last semester of school, I happened to take a class in a field called biomechanics, which uh, has a lot to do with sort of looking closely at form and function of animals and sort of how they work, thinking about them sort of using principles of engineering. Um, and got into this project that I really liked and actually connected to, to how I really focus on and always have always been drawn in by taking beautiful pictures of pretty things. We were actually sort of mapping out these fluorescent proteins in dragonfly wings. So if you imagine, yeah, you can probably picture a dragonfly wing a little bit in your, your mind. It's this sort of mesh. It's almost like a little you know, fence of veins in the wing and it turns out at those little tiny junctures between some the the vein joints there's this amazing flexible rubber protein called resilin that you know the best man-made rubbers return like 80 percent of energy this one returns 97 or 98 percent it's an amazing little flexible protein and also the cool thing is it lights up if you shine um, a particular wavelength of light it lights up bright blue and so you can make take these amazing amazing images of it and so we had done this project sort of mapping that out and looking at um yeah the distribution of that in dragonfly wings and then that led to sort of talking about that work at a conference where i happened to meet somebody who had done a lot of the work in that field and so even though i kind of thought i was going on one path this uh, person her name is stacy Combs. she's out at uc davis right now she does really amazing research she was starting her lab at harvard uh at that point and sort of through happenstance i ended up taking this job and i thought oh, okay i'll spend a year working on this and then i'll kind of get back to the other <laughs> the, the work that i was planning on doing um but i ended up really liking it and then we stuck around for a while uh a year turned into two years and then after the end of that period I realized I was sort of really enjoying this more almost engineering-y version of biology uh, and ended up applying to her lab sort of unanticipated, but, you know, became really interested. So I applied in her lab to do a PhD uh, with her. And so that's how I ended up staying at Harvard and sort of starting off uh, work. That's actually what got me into bumblebees originally was doing more flight biomechanics-oriented research. Uh, and so bumblebees were kind of my gateway drug into social behavior and thinking about social insects uh, more generally, mainly because you can order them in a box in the middle of winter. And so you're not restricted to just doing research in the summer. 
How did you find your way into the neonicotinoid space? Yeah, so that was somewhat more recent. Uh, so by the end of my PhD, I had ended up focusing on questions that kind of had to do with how bees within, and bumblebees in particular, within a colony behave, how different animals are, um, and what that kind of variation of behavior does, and what it kind of means for, for bumblebee colonies. And to do that kind of work, I had been developing tools where I could sort of look inside of a bumblebee colony and use a computer to start automatically identifying what bees were doing. So in general, kind of uh, developing computer-based tools that can open up the black box of uh, a bumblebee colony. And that's a black box both in sort of a metaphorical sense, but also in a literal sense, because bumblebees, you might notice that they live underground for the most part. So they're li literally living in dark holes in the ground, right? And so, as you can imagine, that's generally a little harder to study, um, and especially sort of tracking behavior the way we've traditionally done it with, uh, you know, having a human put a little number on the back of a bee and follow it for a long time. Pretty challenging way to study behavior, especially at scale. And so it sort of limited the insight we had into, yeah, looking inside of a bumblebee colony and, and what was going on. So really, I kind of developed some of those tools with questions in mind that were focused primarily on really basic fundamental questions about bumblebee biology. But as we were developing those tools, I was sort of reading more and learning more about the, the world of neonicotinoids and the continuous exposure that these um, organisms have to these compounds which work uh, by basically targeting really important receptors in the central nervous system of bees. Um, and there had been a lot of work on what the effects of those compounds were on some aspects of biology, but really a, a big question mark is what they do inside of the nest. And so for me, there was just kind of a moment when actually someone else in the lab was working on a, uh, what the effects of these compounds were on foraging behavior. But we realized, like, oh, we have this amazing tool, and we now have the uh, questions and ability to feed these compounds. Let's see if there's anything interesting in terms of what these compounds are doing to social behavior within colonies. And that started off as kind of a small pilot, um, but then we saw really interesting results, and that has then sort of expanded out into a real uh, focus of my research. So really, it kind of started with the tool having the tool uh, to ask this question first. And then, uh, yeah, I've really moved into that field. Mm -hmm. I, I was reading, uh, to some extent, uh, 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 online about you. Not to some extent. I read as much as I could on you. And they said that you were using tools that were developed for neuroscience to better understand the social behavior of bees. I'm curious, like, what, what tools would those be? And, and I think you kind of, like, touched on a, an overview of, like, how you developed into it. I'm curious, like, what are these, like, neuroscience-related tools or techniques that you're using? Yeah, so that's a great question. And so part of the answer to that is I'm actually, so I do my research right now. I'm a postdoctoral fellow after I finished my PhD a couple of years ago. And so I'm working in a lab, the lab of uh, Dr. Benjamin Debevoort at Harvard that is a fruit fly neuroscience lab primarily. And the reason I wanted to work here is they do absolutely phenomenal work developing tools 
for quantifying behavior in really high throughput, automated ways in ways you could never do just by by eye. And that is sort of specific to they need those tools for some of the questions that they're asking in about fundamental aspects of behavior and fruit flies. And so one of the things I wanted to do, the reason I wanted to do this work in this lab is to sort of adapt some of those tools and start using them to ask questions in the applied behavior and ecology of bumblebees. And so one example of that is this lab had developed this amazing tool for actually handling fruit flies. So it's a, a robotic arm kind of that can move around, uh, go down, suck up a fruit fly, move it into another vial, uh, and put it, so basically actually manipulate and sort of record aspects of behavior in fruit flies. So totally amazing tool. Uh, and what I did is adapted the kind of design that they had made for that to put some cameras on it. Instead of yeah, having sort of a fruit fly handling vacuum, I put tracking cameras on that instead, but used the same sort of basic tool that they were using. And instead used that to automate recording of behavior across lots of colonies at the same time. So the tool that they had developed for some very different questions in fruit fly science became really fundamental for my research in terms of being able to replicate studies across lots of colonies at the same time. And that replication is actually really fundamental to some of these questions in the behavior of social insects because the interesting unit isn't actually the individual worker, it's really the whole colony. Um, yeah, so for some important fundamental and practical reasons, we really need to be able to replicate across lots of colonies at the same time and these tools from this lab really let me do that do you have any like dream tools or things that you you wish you could have to like better understand them or are you like this is good just takes time with what you have oh no such a long list of dream tools <laughs> it's like all i'm doing is yeah imagining uh how great things could be um no there's so there's a couple candidates of things some of which are sort of short-term goals of new tools we're developing and some longer term. Um, so some of the short-term tools are, so right now we track what individual bees are doing with these black and white uh, dot matrix kind of tags that encode identity and position. But especially from the sort of deep learning world, there's this amazing new emergence of tools that are really great at doing tracking of particular body parts um, and can get a level of detail that we can't get right now, but are becoming more and more applicable to the kinds of questions we want to ask. So in the short term, one thing we're working towards is starting to adapt some of the tools that are coming online for doing this, what's called sort of deep learning tracking and using that to get a, a much more detailed picture. So instead of just like, oh, a bee is here and sort of turned this way and moving around, can we get nuance and detail of what the antennae are doing, how they're moving their legs, um, where different body, body parts are. So really sort of increasing the, the depth of information we have in the same context, sort of within the nest and understanding behavior in that context. And then one of, to me, one of the uh, biggest goals of what I would absolutely love to see, and I think we'll have in the next 10 or 20 years, but we have some work to get there, is to 
be able to not just track what bees are doing when they're inside of the nest, but what they're doing as they're moving around freely in the environment. So for example, in like birds right now, with GPS tags and other kinds of technology, we can continuously track essentially where they are in three dimensions for really long extended periods. And that gives us really amazing information about um, how birds are interacting, say in flocks, how they're using their environment, uh, their flight performance in different contexts, all these amazing insights into the sort of ecology of these animals. But those GPS tags and all that um, technology just isn't small enough to fit on the back of a bee yet. <laughs> so we're going to have to have some other, other tools. But I think to me, that would be really exciting if we could start saying, you know, we can follow what bees are doing inside of the colony, but we also can understand when workers are going out to the world and sort of going and gathering food resources out from the real environment, what they're doing out there. To me, that's when you could really start connecting the sort of whole life of a bee colony. Hmm. I was just thinking, I wonder if you could put like some type of reflective material on the back of these like uh, bumblebees and then put like some LIDAR technology in the middle of a field because they have like a like a radius of how far they'll go. And then you can just differentiate um, the LIDAR signals based on what reflects back if, if that doesn't exist in that environment. That should be, that would be cheaper because then you could just do like the IoT technology type connection and have like even remote areas be hooked up. But then you'd have to like manually do each bee. Um, I was just brainstorming yeah, how to solve some, it. <laughs> I don't know if that would actually totally, do Totally, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and there's, there's cool... Um, so, for example, there's a thing called Harmonic Radar, which works on, um, yeah, like a, a, right now it's limited to, I think, just one or a small number of bees at the same time. Um, but, yeah, so that's one again. There, You know, you can attach telemetry tags, and we've actually been playing around with that a little bit. So there is sort of a world of potential tools. Um, but, yeah, for me especially if we could sort of map out the behavior of every worker in the hive over their full sort of lifetime behavior, that would be amazing. Yeah. So I think there, you know, there, there might be some imaging solutions. There might be some new sort of electronic solutions. There's a lot of things that I think are worth exploring, but that's sort of, you know, if we have something, I'll be very happy if, and when we have that in 10 years. <laughs> mm -hmm. Makes sense. The, I, I was curious, is there anyone in particular doing the deep learning? Um, is there like a program or people that you would use or that you think are doing good work right now that you think will be eventually be what you end up using? Oh, there's a bunch of people doing great work. Um, yeah, so uh, a couple specific examples that we're paying uh, a lot of attention to is there's a program called uh, Deep Lab Cut, which was developed at here at Harvard, actually, uh, by Mackenzie and Alex Mathis, among others in the Murphy Lab. Um, yeah, so they've done some really nice sort of adapting some of the tools, uh, uh, develop, sort of building on other developments in deep learning and starting to apply those tools to more animal behavior, and they're, they're neuroscientists. Um, there's another group, Ian Cousins Lab uh, uh, at the University of Konstanz and the Max Planck Institute over in Germany. Um, Jake Graving, a grad student from their lab, just released a really cool other example of, of tools on this front that's sort of similar but a little different. So there's really, the, there's a lot of movement in this field right now on doing this kind of tracking. So yeah, there's a lot of folks we're paying attention to. <laughs>
All right, sweet. I'm going to check them out as well. I have, a, uh, I have a friend out in Waymo and a couple other people that I've interviewed that are doing this deep learning stuff. It's just utterly fascinating what you can do. It's almost like the limitations, is like to what extent the sensors, you know, like you have to have like the right sensors in the area because like the, the deep learning can do a lot, but then you have to like do like the CMOS technology or whatever to be able to break down all the other stuff and only find the stuff that's important. Um, that is like me not trying to be technical about like uh, about no yeah yeah no that's great yeah yeah but uh, no and I think what's amazing is there's you know this combination I think a lot of it's coming from driverless cars and all these other real world like commercial and other applications that are helping drive not only like making the the technology really cheap like for example now there's um, you know like little chips that can run essentially these deep learning networks that used to be like, oh, you need a huge fancy computer to do it on a desktop. But now for $100, you can get a little unit that basically runs a Raspberry Pi, a computer, and uh, these deep learning processing scripts for, you know, $100, which is just unimaginable <laughs> a decade or two ago. So I think it's really cool. Even if, you know, I don't think anybody had in mind like, bumblebee behavioral ecology when they're developing those tools but it has these really awesome sort of knock-on effects for for our research i'm sorry if like you said the name of the hundred dollar ish thing and then we clipped out but what what is the name of it so people can so i can put it in the show uh, i don't know if i said it so uh what is it it's google aiy i think is the unit that i'm thinking of so it's like artificial intelligence but so instead of diy AIY. Yeah. But there's a few different units that are all kind of in that price range, like a hundred or a couple hundred dollars. There's a unit called a coral unit. Um, yeah. So there's really sort of a, a whole family of these things developing right now. Oh, sweet. That's, that's like half the fun of talking to a researcher is you get to learn about all this stuff that you had no idea exists. Cause like you're like at the cutting edge, you're like, you're pushing the envelope. So you, you get to know about all this. I mean, not get to know, like other people listening in could potentially like do the research as well and get in on it, which kind of leads me to a question on citizen science. Then I want to jump back into the neonicotinoids, which I have spelt phonetically on my screen. So I don't sound stupid. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious if, if you have any uh, thoughts on to what extent citizen science or like people developing this stuff in their backyards or whatever and uh, gathering data or being useful and helping influence, if, if not contributing to research that you or other people are doing? Do you think that that citizen science can be a part of helping create the change? Or do you think citizen science is like its own thing that doesn't? Oh, no, I think yeah. that citizen science is enormously important on so many different fronts. Um, I mean, A, just having people engaged and paying attention to the natural world a good in itself right so i think anybody anything that is is helping make that happen is phenomenal right but also there's just amazing examples of citizen scientists contributing their really important research on so many different fronts so one example is uh, i don't know if you've heard of uh, these the sort of one of the papers that really sparked the recent kind of insect armageddon uh, worry that you know 76% of insect biomass has declined in Germany in the past. Uh, I think it was 27 years. I don't know if the, it, I'm not sure if that's news to you or any listeners, but you know there's there's a New York Times article. There's been a lot of of really important public recognition of oh man we might be seeing really 
critical and rapid declines in insect populations across the globe. And, you know, that one study wasn't definitive. There's a lot of questions, and we really just don't know the state of a lot of insect populations across the globe. But that paper, that original study from Germany, was really citizen scientists and sort of an entomology club, to my understanding, that had been collecting this data over the long period, right? So you had this dedicated core that had been creating this phenomenal data set that turned into a really important scientific publication. So I think that kind of work, I mean, it's just a huge amount of labor and it's really hard to imagine that happening just in the context of paid professional researchers. So that's, I think, an example of a really important contribution in citizen science. Also, there's a ton of efforts and I mean, bumblebees are in some ways a, a lucky species to work on because people love them and they pay attention to them. And so they're actually really well mapped. And so I use public databases all the time to look at where the range of the bumblebees I'm interested in are. Um, yeah, to look at sort of patterns over time. Uh, yeah, so there's a, a ton of really great applications. And actually, speaking of sort of artificial intelligence, one really phenomenal development that's been happening is I've been using this. It's called the Seek app by iNaturalist. So iNaturalist is this huge database of just pictures of different uh, animals and plants and organisms that people are taking pictures of and identifying. And all of that data has now been turned into this amazing phone app that you just point your phone at something and identify what species it is, right? So underlying that is a huge amount of work from citizens paying attention to the natural world and taking pictures of it. And I think that's just so cool. Uh, I, I agree with that. Um, I was talking to a scientist recently and they were saying that sometimes scientists are somewhat elitist in where they get their data from, which it, it's like, in my thinking, I would think like as long as the data is like valid and like, you know, you can check on it to make sure like they're not like making up numbers and stuff or like putting like Clevens in there if anyone's a, the, the office fan. But um, like I, I feel like it can't do anything but help because then like more people care, like you said, like I think you hit the nail on the head. So I, I've been I've been wanting to ask more of that to other scientists because like it seems like a weird way to want to. I mean, it's not like brain surgery. Like I wouldn't want a citizen science uh, potentially doing uh, brain surgery stuff. But like with all those other things that involve the natural world, like everyone can be a part of that. But. Yeah, and it is, I mean, a lot of it is hard, you know, so like even in, let's say, Bumblebee, they're just uh, another great example that I just saw a cool talk on this a few weeks ago um, was Claudio Breton's lab out um, at the University of Wisconsin, I think. Let me come back and we can cut that out if I'm wrong on that. <laughs> but they've got a, a really fantastic program where they are having folks identify bumblebees from these kind of databases of pictures. And one thing that they're doing is going and categorizing against, sort of double checking that against experts, right? So experts that know the particular little details of what aspects of the face or tongue length or these little minute aspects of, of anatomy that tell species apart. We have experts checking those and then citizen science and like, you know, I think there are dual lessons of that are citizen scientists in general are pretty good, but they also definitely make mistakes, even though, you know, experts certainly make mistakes too. So to me, it's all, it's, you certainly want to think about what kind of biases and limitations 
both expert science and citizen science are going to have because we just need to recognize that, you know, there are mistakes and limitations to any approach, right? And to me, there's a trade-off between that and the amount of data and work and information you can get from citizen science. So should we, to me, it's not really a like, oh, should we just trust data coming from citizen scientists? Of course not. We also shouldn't just trust data coming from from experts, right? You want to think about the biases and limitations that are built into it, but at the same time, it's an incredibly valuable tool. Definitely. So I want to I want to kind of dive into your research a little bit more, and then uh, I got some like wrap up questions at the same time. But the in terms of neonicotinoids, Jesus, neonicotinoids. <laughs> see, I, I I had to write it down. If I say it fast. It's the nicka part. I don't know why. I just think, it's, I think a, it's, like, it's a tongue twister. I just want to you call can, it like neo nicks. You, you can call them neo nicks too. It's a little easier. There you go. Uh, neo nicks. So uh, in terms of the neo nick uh, research that, that you've been doing uh, or that you, you're excited about, um, I feel like neonicotinoids, they, they're they like a relatively recent thing that's been popping up more and more and more. And I feel like it's not it's not something that's been recent in terms of what it's been going on. And so I'm curious, in terms of your life, I don't know if that's true. Like, I, Maybe that's just an impression I have, but I feel like it's probably been going on for like decades and we just didn't know what was going on to such an extent involving bees. And that since we've been researching more about clinical lab story and everything else going on, that we've started to like pinpoint, hey, this is one vertical that is being effective or that's being effect, that's affecting bees in this way. But how did you come to learn about neonicotinoids and then... Um, Maybe not how do you come to learn about it, but like, is that the, the general history of it? That is that actually how it went or am I just dumb? And <laughs> I think differently. <laughs> no, no, no. I think that's, yeah, that's, you know, you got the, the major contours, right? So it is, so neonics are relatively recent in the sense that it only been around for a, a couple decades. So they came on the market in the nineties. Um, and since then have sort of rapidly risen to global dominance. So they're the most widely used class of insecticides globally currently. Um, and it is, so it is certainly right that by, you know, the mid 2000s when they were being extremely used, widely used globally, certainly effects were likely already happening that maybe we weren't fully paying attention to at first. And part of the story on that is that the way, both back then and still currently, that we test whether or not new agrochemicals and pesticides in particular are safe um, is a pretty limited way, right? So there are wonderfully tests to make sure that new pesticides aren't directly harmful to bees, and in particular honeybees, and that's an important note. Um, so for example, when a new pesticide uh, is being checked whether or not it can be released on the market, there are tests that we want to say, okay, here are the concentrations that we think bees are going to be exposed to. And if we expose in some different ways, honeybees, what are the sort of toxic levels, right? And there's limitations on that then say like, okay, below uh, these levels of toxicity, that's where we're going to uh, set the limits on what, whether or not these are safe, A, and what sort of concentrations can be used. But that's an, a really pretty limited uh, way of thinking about whether or not chemicals have a negative impact, especially for neonics. So again, sort of rewinding a little bit, the way that neonics 
work is that they target the central nervous system of insects, right? So they target really common, they mimic a very common neurotransmitter in the insect central nervous system. So it's perhaps not surprising that there might be effects below sort of acutely toxic, right? So even if a bee isn't falling over dead, maybe it has some sort of low-level impaired behaviors that still nonetheless uh, are negative, even if it's not directly toxic, right? And this is really exactly what we started to see. So neonics went through that initial sort of safety check on honeybees, um, got registered and got released, at least in the United States, uh, and then sort of took over the market. And then we started realizing, oh, at first sort of through anecdotal observations, and then more and more through careful uh, quantitative studies, we started finding that in fact, even relatively low levels of exposure to these compounds still have negative impacts on, say, colony growth, right? And some of that is from field, both field and lab studies, right? And so the, the kind of levels of concentration we're talking about are the way these compounds are used is usually they are most commonly applied as a seed coating. So a, a little bit is applied to a seed before it's planted, and then they're called systemic insecticides, so they're actually taken up by plant tissues and end up showing up in every tissue of the sort of adult plant, even after just the seed is treated. So if you're a farmer that wants to protect your crops, that seems like a real advantage, right? Because every leaf, stem, every part of your plant for the sort of lifetime of the plant has some of this compound in it and is protected. The downside is that that systemic nature of the pesticide also means it shows up in nectar and pollen that, for example, beneficial insects like bees are feeding on. Uh, and so the concentrations that we have now know can negatively impact colony growth and health are these really low concentrations that we see you know, months after an initial seed treatment. So we're talking in the levels of parts per, very low parts per billion. Of these compounds in nectar, so really like trace levels. But even hello, yeah, yeah, no, I'm still here. Oh, sorry, wait, I got a weird sound from something. Okay, um, I could say mm hmm more. Right, I've been trying not to say mm hmm. Oh, no, 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 no. It was my phone made some like sound like something was being canceled. <laughs> that was weird. Um, okay. Sorry, yeah. Uh, so pick that up where I was talking. Um, Oh yeah, so trace amounts. even these very low trace uh, levels of these compounds we now know can reduce, for example, bumblebee colony growth in the field. These realistic applications in fields reduce sort of solitary uh, and native bee populations. Interestingly, it seems like honeybees are actually the least affected. So for example, one study recently found that uh, in the same field and the same application conditions, honeybees essentially were unaffected by exposure to these compounds. Bumblebees had kind of intermediate, strong, but still uh, not totally devastating effects on bumblebees. And then solitary bees, by some metrics, were just totally wiped out. So it seems like there's some variation across species in terms of uh, how strong these effects are. But sort of in general, the story that has emerged. So initially we kind of thought these compounds were safe and then we realized that even these low levels of exposure are still uh, impacting colonies. And there had been 
a lot of great work on what some of the, the mechanisms were. Um, so for example, a lot of work on what exposure at flowers might do to foragers in the bee colony. But what we were really interested in, again, was thinking not just sort of foragers outside of the colony, but what happens to this whole sort of social world of bees inside of the, the colony. So as we know that foragers that are out collecting nectar that's laced with these compounds, they come back to the nest, and then other workers within the nest are kind of exposed to that. So we know that even workers within the colony that might not be going out and foraging, they're still exposed to these compounds. So what is it doing in that context is kind of where the focus of our research was. So what is a question you have that you do not have the answer to? And that maybe someone listening in could give you the, the answer. So the, the one I usually give people is I always imagine what would it be like if I went back in time to the, the Big Bang and I like shot it in the head metaphorically and stopped it from happening, like what would be here in its stead? And uh, so that makes me, that's a question that I don't think anyone's going to have the answer to. But I'm curious, like, what's the question that you wonder about that you'd love an, the answer to? Yeah, that's a good, so something that I think about a lot, especially in the context of my work, because oftentimes I get the question, well, what's the alternative to pesticides, right? You know, what are we, if we can't use these, what do we do? So to me, and this is really a sort of a whole field set of questions. It's a pretty big one, but I think there's this really burning question of how and to what extent can we rem either fully remove or at least dramatically reduce pesticides, and to what extent can we at scale, because we know we need to produce food at enormous levels and potentially increasingly so, you know, in the coming decades on our planet. So how, to what extent can we intensify agricultural production through sort of natural, biological, and ecological means rather than, say, synthetic chemical inputs? And, you know, I don't think that's an answer that anybody's going to have uh, a single line <laughs> answer to. It's something we, there is a lot of research on we need to put a lot more into but so for me that is like one of the most interesting pressing questions at the sort of interface of things that I think about for research and things that I think about just in terms of society and personal life and what the world is going to look like and you know when my kids are my age sweet the, I have no idea how to answer that one. So the, the, next, <laughs> the next question for you, which means it's a good one. Um, sometimes I actually guess at how to solve people's uh, questions, but what is a problem you were having that you'd love help with? So a lot of people listening are like, this guy, James, he's cool. <laughs> Maybe they want to help you out. What's a problem you're having that they can help out with? Yeah, in terms of um, something that we would love, and this is almost maybe kind of a, a citizen science adjacent question, is uh, a sort of new research angle that I'm really interested in is thinking about how social insects like bumblebees, because they're actually sort of warm-blooded as a whole colony, they actually incubate their young and sort of regulate temperature within inside the nest. And I'm really interested in thinking about how that changes across sort of geographical gradients. So especially starting next spring, I'm going to start sort of exploring different localities um, to look for in particular Bombus impatiens queens. So in the beginning of spring, uh, the queens will emerge 
And then what we really want to do is sort of collect queens all the way from, you know, Maine or Canada down to, to Florida where the species bombus and patients goes. And we look, love to look at how sort of behavior and physiology vary across that range. So any listeners that, that see bumblebee and queens across that range and want to help me scope out field sites, that would be enormously helpful. Additionally, if you live in those areas and you don't know how to do that, you probably could contact James if he's open to it and he could tell you how to do it or uh, send you a guide. Would they Very much so. Okay, I so, would so, love to hear from you. Yeah. So like, even if you, if you don't know how, and quite frankly, if you don't know how, wouldn't it be cool to learn how to identify bumblebees in your backyard, especially if you live on the East Coast? You should, you should, you should contact him. All right, so uh, what is a book or resource you would uh, recommend people check out involving, um, somewhat involving beekeeping or just anything that you're passionate about? So there's one, this is, you know, close to the hill, but I really love one of my first sort of forays into this field. And a, a reason I became really fascinated with bumblebees was there's this amazing guy named Bernd Heinrich, uh, who is retired now, but worked at the University of Vermont. He's amazing, an amazing naturalist writer, but also had a career as a, just a phenomenal research biologist. He worked on bumblebees and he wrote a book called Bumblebee Economics which I think is just one of the most beautifully written, like fascinating for scientists because there's this amazing research in it, but totally readable for just about anybody interested in the natural world. So I would totally recommend picking up that book if you want to think about how sort of bumblebees work as little behavioral machines and uh, yeah, how they deal with extreme temperatures in particular. James Crawl, and that was James Crawl. Remember to check him out at jamesdcrawl.com. See all of his research, get into his artwork, and and more. Uh, definitely check out that book he recommended. It actually was a fantastic read. It'll be in the show notes as well for those who were just listening. If there's someone that you want to have me interview, let me know. I will add them. There's still a little room, and I'm finishing it up, but you should get a lot of bee content this month. They talk about bee week. We're getting a bee month. Additionally, remember to check out in the show notes the link to the website for the crowdfunding campaign that I'm going to be running soon. If you've liked the the podcast, if you've liked the episode, if you want to help out, check the link, sign up, share it with your friends, and every every person, every time you get someone to sign up, any of this type of information is another chance that you're going to win. One of the things that I'm making, and what I'm making is basically a modern beehive. I'm talking stainless steel, aerogel insulation, sensors, Uh, data analytics, all that stuff, easily accessible 24-7, and that's going to be the crowdfunding campaign, but don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. We can be found on Twitter at LowellWasHere, Facebook, and on the website, learningwithlowell.com. Also sign up for the newsletter where you can hear amazing content every Monday, new episodes every Tuesday, and new blog posts around every Thursday. Remember to share and tell your friends, please and thank you.